Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Hope you're having a good Tuesday morning or whatever day it is you happen to be listening. Thank you for listening. Appreciate that. Lots to discuss in the NFL. Certainly some things went on last week with Aaron Rodgers and the trade deadline. And the NFL's got a few things they got to handle. We'll get to that. We'll go through the games. And, man, what a bizarre week. If you ever needed evidence that the NFL is certainly a week-to-week league, this past weekend was your go-to weekend to prove that point. College basketball gets underway tonight. If you're a Syracuse fan, that's good. If you're a major college basketball fan, there is an unbelievable lineup tonight on ESPN that you'll be able to see. Jack Eichel no longer Sabres going to hit on that. And MLB, under the wonderful direction of Rob Manfred, made another great decision over the weekend, and I want to hit on that too. But certainly I'm going to start in Buffalo. Well, with the Buffalo Bills. It was actually in Jacksonville that the Bills laid the biggest egg of the Sean McDermott era. And it's funny because to this point, you look at McDermott and Bean, and when they've come in to Buffalo, year one, they back into the playoffs, thanks to Andy Dalton beating the Ravens on the last day. They get to the playoffs, the curse is broken. They are put on a pedestal right then and there. Year two, it's a rebuild. Clean out the the locker room of the people that don't fit their culture and their process. And, and stockpile draft picks to get the quarterback. Year three, you get the quarterback back to the playoffs again. Last year was a, a great step forward year for the Bills where they, they get to the AFC Championship game. So everything that Bean and McDermott has done to this point has been positive. And the fan reaction, the media, everyone loves these guys, and, and rightly so. And then Sunday happened. And this, to me, is the first real speed bump of the McDermott-Bean era. And, and this is the first, we got to look at things. And, and this year, let's face it, this team is 5-3, and three, which is fine. And, and, and if you listen to this regularly, I had predicted that they would be 3-3 three and three coming out of the bye. I, I thought that they would lose to Kansas City and Tennessee and, and probably another game in there. So I thought they'd be 3-3 three and three and then go on a bit of a run. So being a 5-3 and three is no different than what I had expected. What I didn't expect, though was the struggles offensively that the Bills seem to have on a week-in, week-out basis. The the problem, as I see it, is the problem I feared coming into the year. The Bills' interior of their offensive line wasn't good to me from the beginning of the year. And at the beginning of the year, it was Cody Ford at right guard, Mitch Morris at center, and John Feliciano at left guard. Feliciano is a very serviceable guard. He's not great. He's a good player. Mitch Morse came in, and he was one of the first big acquisitions for being in McDermott. They brought him in to shore things up with their young quarterback. Paid him a lot of money at, at the time of his signing. Made him the highest-paid center in the league. He's been very average 
and and I don't believe he'll be part of this team next year. Cody Ford, a second-round draft pick. And he was brought in to either be a right tackle, which he didn't play well, so they moved him into guard, in which he hasn't played well. Now you add the injuries to Spencer Brown, who when Cody Ford was so bad, they brought Spencer Brown in to play right tackle. He was a third-round pick this year. Moved Daryl Williams to guard and try and shore things up that way. Well, Feliciano got hurt. Brown got hurt. Moved Williams back out to tackle. And now you got Ike Bucker at left guard, who's a career journeyman and a very average player at best. And Cody Ford, who's just the biggest bust so far of Bean's drafts. So you've got problems in the interior of that line. And again, it was a problem that I thought was going to be there at the beginning of the year, and it's grown since then. And you add to that that Daryl Williams isn't having a really good year at right tackle when he was out there and didn't play well on Sunday. And the Bills got the crap kicked out of them up front against a team that they're the worst talent-wise, in my opinion, in the entire league. There are worse teams than the Jaguars. No team has less talent, 1 through 53, than the Jaguars do. And, and I got to throw this out there. Everyone saw the game and everyone saw what happened and the, the fact that the Jags won. I read some places that I can't believe Sean McDermott got beat by Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer beat the Bills. How does Urban Meyer. Did everyone forget that this guy's one of the best college coaches of all time? Look, this year's been an abject failure for him in Jacksonville. They are a team that at times has looked misguided. There was the incident in his own bar with the young girl in in Columbus. He hasn't handled things well. But don't forget that Urban Meyer is a, a great football coach, one of the best ever in college football history. So... To be surprised that he outcoached Sean McDermott, I don't know where that take came from and how people felt so comfortable throwing it out there. It made no sense to me when I read that, and I read it from multiple people. Again, I don't know if Urban Meyer is going to end up staying in Jacksonville and being a winner. I said early on in the year, the situation in Jacksonville reminds me of Jimmy Johnson in Dallas early on with the quarterback and a few other players. But Urban Meyer, if he chooses to go back to college football, say at USC, they'll be a top 10 program in two years. He's that good. So don't be surprised at that. Here's the other thing about McDermott and Bean. You know, you look at the game and Josh Allen had a bad game. And and, and I want to criticized Josh Allen for regressing to to rookie and second-year Josh of making bad throws, not taking care of the football. But this guy's out there trying to make plays to get a win, and he's getting very little help. Nothing else on the offensive side of the football is going well for the Bills. So Allen, who's under heavy pressure, trying to make plays, is making mistake after mistake. And, And three turnovers later, No touchdowns. The Bills are out. I think that when you look at the penalties, the penalties in this game, to me, were striking. The fact that the Bills committed 12 penalties for 118 yards in a game against Jacksonville, 
if you remember the Rex Ryan era, the undisciplined Bills, yeah, it's because their coach is undisciplined. Well, let me tell you, the penalties have never really gone backwards. Sean McDermott gets a pass on this because we all like Sean McDermott. But the Bills are an undisciplined team when it comes to penalties. They have been all year. This game in particular stands out. But again, because we like McDermott and he's done so much well, we kind of overlook it. Well, I don't think we're going to overlook it after this loss. And I think that's the biggest thing about this loss is there are flaws, and there have been flaws, with Bean, with McDermott, with Josh Allen, with the Bills as a team that we've kind of let slide because, you know, hey, it's a feel-good story. AFC Championship last year, they're going to be probably the AFC East champion this year and go even further. Let's slow down a minute. Let's look at this at face value and let's look at where they've been. They haven't played well all year. They've had a couple really good games. Their biggest win, of course, on the road at Kansas City. Now that game, Jordan Love was terrible, and they almost beat Kansas City at home on Sunday. So how good is KC? I guess the answer to that is not very good at this point. So that's not a big surprise. They shut out a bad Miami team. They shut out a terrible Houston team. The the defense did its job Sunday. They did. They allowed three field goals. They only allowed 218 total yards to Jacksonville. They did their job. The offense didn't. Brian Dable's adjustments were non-existent. Sean McDermott's always been a below-average, in my opinion, in-game coach. Fortunately, he's an excellent preparer of the team. He built a, a great organization in Buffalo and a great culture that allows them to win. He puts them in a position every week to be ready to play and ready to win. Unfortunately, in game, he's been below average. And, and I think when you get to close games and big games, it's very important that he be better. And he, he just hasn't been. But on Sunday was the first time I thought that the McDermott, in the McDermott era, that his team didn't come to play. And again, it's much different being the hunted versus the hunter. And, and the Bills now, they're the hunted. Everyone wants to get at them. They were in the AFC Championship game. You don't think Jacksonville was ready to go knowing the third of that stadium was going to have Bills Mafia in it? You don't think all week Jacksonville was thinking, screw these guys, let's go out there and kick their ass? It's our stadium. You don't think that was their mentality going into this game? The thing is, McDermott's got to find a way to get his guys to buy in and be ready to match that intensity, and he didn't on Sunday. And again, this is one game. It's one loss. It's a big loss. But it's showing signs that certain things that have been going on all year are starting to crack. I mentioned the penalties. The Bills were just 6 of 15 on third down conversions, 0 and 1 on fourth. They gave up four sacks. They gave up seven quarterback hits against a terrible football team. Where were the adjustments? Where was the, okay, they're doing this. This isn't working. Where is this? going to go to fix it. And the biggest 
it's got to be fixed is something that it was a problem last year, and I thought it cost the Bills in the playoffs. It's a bigger problem this year, and because of the adjustments, don't forget, when the season ends, teams throughout the league study tape. Game after game after game, they break down film of what the good teams or the bad teams, what are they doing? And with the Bills, offensively last year, it was a dream year. They had a great year. Nobody cared that the Bills didn't run the ball because the passing game was so effective. Well, what do you think defensive coordinators and coaches throughout the league did knowing they're going to play the Bills this year? They studied film and figured out a way to slow down the passing attack. They took away the first read and are forcing Josh Allen to hold the ball a bit longer and throw to a second read. And it's giving a bad defensive, a bad offensive line problems because they're not able to protect Allen. So all of those things have gone into it. And when you don't have a running game and you haven't bothered to develop a running game and your offensive line isn't capable of blocking for a running game, then you've only you're a one-trick pony. And anytime a good defense or good defensive mind looks at a one-trick pony, they know they can stop them. Or at least slow them down, and that's been, to me, the biggest problem. The fact that the Bills' offensive line, especially the interior, is so poor, the running backs are very average, you're not worried about the running game. You do everything you have to to take away the pass attack of Josh Allen. If the running game beats you, so be it. You challenge them to do so. And on Sunday, it just... Wasn't even close to that. Six carries for Singletary. He had six. He had 16 yards. He did catch seven passes for 43. Zach Moss had three carries, six yards. He was in the concussion protocol. Two catches for 18. But you're talking about you're talking about 18 touches for your running backs all day. It's not a ton, and it puts a ton of pressure. On Josh Allen, Allen threw the ball 47 times. Oh, again, he was their leading rusher on the day. Five carries for 50 yards for the season. Zach Moss has 355 yards. He leads the team in rushing. Again, that's through eight games. That's an average somewhere in the neighborhood of 45-ish or 42-ish yards per game. Not great. Zach Moss has 233 yards on the year. Again, through eight games, it's less than 30 yards a game. Both of these guys, by the way, third-round picks. Everyone else in the league seems to get really good running backs in the second, third round. The Bills have not done that. Josh Allen has 319 yards rushing. He's their second-leading rusher, and it is only... About 36 yards behind Singletary to be the leading rusher on the team. Can't happen. Can't have it. You can't win football games like that. And and in short yardage, they don't have, A, the ability to block the interior of the offensive line. B, a back who can get them a couple yards. So they have to use Josh Allen. Now, here's the other thing about film work and about understanding preparation. Josh Allen, since he's come into the league, although very effective as a runner and and excellent as an all-around quarterback, he's been a fumbler. So what do teams do? 
They're going to try to punch the ball up. They're going to always go for it and try to create turnovers. And they've done that repeatedly. Once teams know you have a fumble problem, they will go for the football. And that's another part of this issue. So you start to look at Allen, and, and, and I loved I loved what he said after the game. Played like shit, got to be better. I love that. There's nothing not to like about Josh Allen as far as the quarterback of the Bills. But it's incumbent on Brian Dable, Sean McDermott, Brandon Bean, to figure out a way to get better on that offensive line, A. B, to figure out a way to run the football. This is a, it's a strange mixture. Generally, if you're a defensive team, you want an offense that kind of matches the defense. You want to, if you're a tough defensive coach, you want a tough offense too. That on fourth and one, third and one, we're going to knock you back and get a yard because we got a big, strong offensive line and a tough running back who can do that. The Bills aren't that. The Bills are very much a finesse offensive team. They're a very much a, a, a dichotomy with the defense being very good and the defensive coach, minded coach, being somebody who wants to, to play old school. But offensively, they're just a one-dimensional, very soft passing team. And, and again, when you think about where they're going to play games in January in Buffalo – I'm not sure that works, and I'm not sure it makes sense, but yet it's gone on to this point, and the failures of some very high draft picks by Brandon Bean, the failure of Brian Dable to develop a running game around the talent he has, or lack thereof, it's just come back, in my opinion, to bite the bills in the ass, and and it's showed itself on Sunday on a big stage and and a big game. And now, look, it's one loss. I I got to keep saying that. But this is something that snowballed. But when you look at the division and you look at the fact that the Patriots are now only a half game behind the Bills with two matchups yet to come, and if you've watched what the Patriots have done, over the last couple weeks, and you've watched this team, and if you've seen Mac Jones, he's growing into that role. The Patriots are playing very good defense. They're now back to where Belichick is confusing young quarterbacks and making them look even worse than they might already look. It's not a foregone conclusion that the Bills are now going to end up as the AFC champions. This is a big loss, and the trend is more disturbing. Now, Sunday, they go to New York to play the Jets. The Jets are a bad football team. If if you watched last week's game against the Colts, you saw that. This is a bad football team. They've got talent on their defensive line, and frankly, I expect them to have success against the Bills' offensive line. I don't know offensively that the Jets can continue to do what they've done over the last couple weeks with their backup quarterbacks. But I don't think Sunday's game is going to be a walkover. And and I'm really intrigued to see how the Bills answer the bell. They got embarrassed in Jacksonville. They got absolutely embarrassed. Now they go to New York to play a divisional rival that stinks. They need to come out and kick the crap out of the Jets and make a statement. They've got to absolutely get after that. The week after, 
they play Indianapolis, and the Colts are playing much better football and have a chance, in their opinion now, to steal the South with Derrick Henry's injury, although the Titans are playing very well without him. And then it's at New Orleans on Thanksgiving. Now, their quarterback situation's a mess, obviously, but their defense is very good. And then it's the Monday nighter against New England. So the Bills have a couple weeks to figure this out, but they've got to get better. If you look at it, McDermott has got to be better game day, A, and B, he can't let that team sleepwalk into a game again. Starts this Sunday. That team needs to be ready, walking out of the tunnel, to get out there, get after the Jets, and end things early. Dable's got to fix that offensive line, and he's got to coach them to a situation where they're at least acceptable. They're they're not right now. But the the scheme's got to be better because the talent's not good enough to win on its own. So it puts a lot on Brian Dable. Also, he's got to figure out a way to be more multiple within the game, regardless of the personnel he's got. He's got to figure that out. And Brandon Bean, the mistakes, in my opinion, that he made. Remember this. Wyatt Teller, a former Bill, who they got a fifth-round draft pick, so I, I understand that. They got something for him. But the decision to move on from Wyatt Teller, who's now one of the better guards in the NFL, came because they drafted Cody Ford. Teller became really good, and they liked him a lot, and and they thought he was going to be really good. But when they took Ford, they figured they were in a better position. And and you look at that decision. They benched Quentin Spain after giving him a big deal, ended up cutting Quentin Spain. Would you rather have Quentin Spain and Wyatt Teller as your guards right now than Feliciano and Cody Ford? I sure would. Teller is absolutely a a player that you build around. And the Browns are doing that because they're extending him and giving him a contract to keep him off the free agent market. He's become a cornerstone of what's a very good young offensive line in Cleveland. The Bills making that mistake, Brandon Bean making that mistake, is haunting them right now. Here's another thing that Bean screwed up, in my opinion. The running back position, misjudging talent on two guys he took in the third round. Neither of them have become anything close to a bell cow back. As a matter of fact, in my opinion, both of them are trending towards if you've got them as your backup, you're probably okay. As long as you don't need them to get 20 carries a game. So he's missed twice on running backs. But the biggest area, I think... And we've seen it over the last couple weeks beyond the Cody Ford situation, is this. Before the trade deadline, your starting tight end, who's been a very much improved player this year, had a broken hand. Now, remember, Dawson Knox broke his hand against Kansas City. You knew he was going to be out three to four weeks. Tommy Sweeney is your only tight end on the roster at that point. Do they go make a move? Zach Ertz got traded just the week before. It was a possibility that they could have gone and done that. There was other talent out there at the tight end position. They didn't. So I don't know if it's draft arrogance by being, but the guys I've drafted are are better than the guys that can bring in. I don't know if that's the case, but Brandon Bean is going to be in the crosshairs a little bit if this season doesn't pan out 
as well. So this was one loss, and it's only one loss, but there are a lot of parts of this loss that are going to reverberate through this organization going forward. And again, let's see how they answer the bell Sunday against the Jets. If it's not a blowout win, I I think there's a trend, and negative trends are never good. Now, I mentioned the Jets. They got blown out last week by the Colts on Thursday night football. Josh Johnson came in in relief of Mike White, who threw for 400 in relief of Zach Wilson. Zach Wilson's second overall pick has not looked good at all this year. He's been off to a very bad start. Mike White comes in, throws for 400 yards. Game two, Mike White gets there early. Josh Johnson, in a game that they were getting blown out, threw for over 300 yards, had that team on the doorstep of a touchdown that would have brought it within a one-score game. It, it ends up getting the ball batted in the air, interception down at the goal line to seal the victory for the Colts. But the point here is Josh Johnson could pass with the talent he's got around him. Mike White could pass with the talent he's got around him. Why can't the second overall pick do that? Did the Jets miss again with a quarterback in the top three? Crazy. I'm not ready to write the eulogy yet on Zach Wilson, but there's a long way to go, and it sure doesn't look look good that two essential journeymen quarterbacks come in and play a lot better than he has with the same situation. The Ravens came back to beat the Vikings in overtime. The Vikings have played three overtime games. The Vikings could be having a very good year, but they can't close things out, which the weird thing about that to me is Dalvin Cook's one of the best backs in the league. Generally, when you've got a great back, when you have a lead, you run the ball with that great back and you close things out. They haven't done that. But the story that I'm coming out of this game with yet again, Lamar Jackson's the MVP of the league, in my opinion. This guy's not only been good, He's been great this year. He continues to evolve as a passer. And, you know, I was one of these guys. Until I see him bring guy bring the team back when they're down, I'm not buying in. Well, time and time again now, we're seeing Lamar Jackson make plays with his team behind to put that team in position to get a win, and they do so. He is just getting better and better and better. What a great player Lamar Jackson is. I mentioned the Browns and their offensive line. They blew out the Bengals in Cincinnati on Sunday. Now, wild week for the Browns. The trade deadline came and went. They weren't able to trade Odell Beckham Jr., whose father put out an 11-minute video showing the number of times he was open and didn't get the ball for Baker Mayfield. The Browns then said, stay home, we don't want you. It all led to a situation where they ended up releasing him over the weekend. Now, today will be the waiver wire thing and Odell's camp. I love that. If you have a camp, I got to get a camp, by the way. I I definitely need a camp. I got to start wearing sunglasses inside and get myself a camp. I'll work on that. I promise I'll do better. Odell's camp put out that if a bad team picks him up, there's going to be problems. I want to play for a contender. Did you happen to look at the Browns' record? The Browns are a contender. I don't know where this season ends up for the Browns, but I love how they're starting their team. Again, they are the opposite of the Bills. They're a team who defensively plays physical football, and I love that, 
But they're a team that can pound the rock with a good offensive line. Nick Chubb's a great back. On Sunday, Chubb had 137 yards and a couple touchdowns. He's, in my opinion, the best back left in the NFL. The best back in the NFL, Derrick Henry's out probably for the year. So that means Chubb is the best back left in the league. John Dorsey, I used to call him Mr. Dorsey on my radio show because when he called Baker Mayfield to tell him he was going to be the number one overall pick, he identified himself on the phone as Mr. Dorsey. And if you call yourself Mr. Dorsey, we better respect you and call you Mr. Dorsey as well. Mr. Dorsey's drafts were excellent. And the amount of talent he amassed to allow this team to be in this position is fantastic. Now, with Beckham gone, I think somebody like Donovan Peoples-Jones with a big touchdown catch on Sunday is allowed to step up. But I think more importantly, the offensive game plan goes back to what it should have been from season from the beginning of the season. And that's run the football to set up the pass. And their offensive line, especially the interior with Teller, who we talked about, Batonio, who, who's very good. Of course, Jedrick Wills, the young tackle. There's so much talent on that def- on that offensive line, they're going to always be able to run it. And for Cincinnati, I talked about the huge call at the end of that Jets game and what the, that loss meant. They've now lost two games in a row, and the AFC North is a dogfight. It is going to be a fun thing to watch the rest of this year. I mentioned the Patriots playing really well. They blew out the Panthers. Matt Jones, they continue to give him more, more, more. He continues to play better and better. The defense is really good. But you know what I learned very much so when I watched a little bit of the Panthers and the Patriots game? That Sam Darnold's not good. Sam Darnold this year is only completing 59.5% of his passes. He's got seven touchdowns, 11 interceptions, 71.3 quarterback rating. Those are the same numbers that Sam Darnold had for his three years in New York with the Jets. And we were led to believe that it wasn't Sam's problem. It was the Jets' lack of talent. Sam Darnold at USC, if you watched him, and and I did a lot, showed the ability to make every throw on the football field. And then he would turn the ball over, make horrible decisions. He's just that guy. And he's continued to be that guy. And nobody's been able to coach it out of him yet. Sam Darnold's destined to a nice career in the NFL. You know, the Geno Smith type career. Where you go somewhere, you carry a clipboard, everyone forgets you're in the league until the guy ahead of you gets hurt. And then you go, oh, Sam Darnold's on that team? I didn't know that. I thought he'd retired. That's what Sam Darnold is. And I I can't help to think. The number of people early on compared Josh Allen and Sam Darnold and and couldn't understand why the Bills would possibly have wanted Josh Allen and how much better Sam Darnold was than Josh Allen. Now, the Bills didn't have a chance, obviously, to draft Sam Darnold. The Jets traded a boatload of picks to get up to number three to make sure they got him. But, man, what a... Another bad decision by the franchise that has a history of taking bad quarterbacks. Let's just hope the Jets haven't done it again. The Dallas Cowboys were looking very good when they came into the stadium with that red stripe like they had back in 76 on their helmet. Yeah, it looked really good. And then 
They didn't because the Denver Broncos were a far better team on Sunday in Dallas. Talk about laying an egg. The Broncos, for whatever reason, the Bills, the Cowboys haven't beat them since 1995. Now, I know they only play once every four years, but that's unbelievable because other than the Elway era and then the Peyton Manning era, and those are two pretty short from 95 anyway, two short eras, the Broncos haven't been a good football team. But their defense is really good. And Javante Williams, kid from North Carolina, second-round pick, he looks fantastic. The yards after contact on Sunday were eye-popping. That team has something, but they lack the biggest piece of the puzzle, the quarterback. If Aaron Rodgers, and I'll get to Rodgers, if he ends up there after this year, watch out for the Denver Broncos. Absolutely a lot of talent around that team. I don't know where they go from here. If anyone watched the Miami-Houston game, I tip my hat to you. Because that was just bad. And that was really bad. What was even worse was the fact that Miami won with Jacoby Brissett. Again, that's actually a double win because Miami has Houston's draft pick this year. So the better, the worse Houston does, the better Miami does in the draft. So it was a really important win. But the fact that Tua was hurt, that's what they told us. He couldn't play because he was hurt. Yet he was active and didn't play because he wasn't healthy enough to play. If you're not healthy enough to play, why are you active? Jacoby Brissett's a better option right now at quarterback for Miami. I know they want Tua to be the guy. I don't know if Tua's going to be the guy. I just don't see it yet. But, man, when Jacoby Brissett gives you a better chance to win, that's something right there. But at least the Dolphins got their second win. Speaking of quarterbacks, Matt Ryan will go down when he beco- when he becomes a Hall of Famer, and I think he will. <laughs> when it's all said and done and his numbers are put up there, you're like, yeah, that guy's got to be a Hall of Famer. Matt Ryan's 343-yard, three-touchdown performance Sunday against New Orleans was just another really good outing for him. Of course, they traded away Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley's trying to get himself straightened up. But think about that. Those stats right there, 73 300-yard passing games, fourth most all-time in history. He's going to be a Hall of Famer eventually. And the Falcons beating the Saints, the Saints got big problems at quarterback. Jameis, out for the year, now it's Trevor Simeon. I just, I don't see the Saints having a really good year. One other quick thing on this game, and it's not really this game, but it's the year. How about the year that Cordell Patterson is having for the Falcons and how they're using him? I I think there's a really, really good thing there because there's been guys like Cordell Patterson who've come into the league, a lot of talent, and nobody can figure out where to use him. Arthur Smith, the new head coach of the Falcons and former OC from the Titans, has done a really good job of figuring out ways To use Patterson, he had 126 receiving yards on Sunday. He's become a real weapon. Giants get a win over the Raiders. And, man, what a terrible week the Raiders had. First, the Henry Ruggs incident, just awful. And and, and you know what? Henry Ruggs made a bad decision. But 155 miles an hour when you're banged up, dude, you're going to serve a lot of time in prison. And 
I get it. It's one mistake. And, you know, unfortunately, this mistake was big enough to ruin Henry Ruggs' life. But it's just such a disregard for anyone else to go that fast and, and to go that fast in, in an area where there's other cars. You're not on the Autobahn. You're not on a highway in the desert where there's no other people around. You're in a town. And you had some girl, it's the RAV4 with her dog, and, and the car blows up. Just awful. And, and I feel bad for Henry Ruggs in a way because, again, he made a mistake. And it, 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 no one mistake should probably ruin your life. But this one will. And this one did. And it took a life. And it's just horrible. So there's that situation. And then the other situation that came out was that Damon Arnett, was released because this guy put a video out threatening to kill people. Damon Arnett was a first-round draft pick last year. He was the 19th pick overall for the Raiders. Henry Ruggs was the 12th pick overall for the Raiders, 2020. So you had two first-round picks, and now they're both gone. John Gruden's out, obviously. Mike Mayock's got to go too, right? I mean, there's no way you stick with Mike Mayock after this year. I mean, you've got a clean house. You're now in Vegas. You've got to go get somebody to straighten that franchise out. Because th- this stuff can't happen. Uh, it's just unbelievable. Oh, they signed Deshaun Jackson, though. That ought to make it better. Yeah, the Chargers and Eagles played, and Justin Herbert, who had two really bad games in a row, came back and looked fantastic against Philly. Now, Philly's defense isn't very good, but Herbert was really good on Sunday. For a second-year player, and, and, and he, I mentioned the week-to-week league in the open, it's certainly a week-to-week league, especially when you're a young player. Herbert is great, and he's going to be great. He's going to struggle here and there, and we've seen it. But, man, there is nothing, in my opinion, not to like about Justin Herbert. He's a leader. He's a smart kid. He makes every throw. Reads defenses for a young player very well. He's athletic enough to use his feet. I, I really, really like him. And if you're building around a young player, he's definitely a guy who's going to be in the conversation for the guy you'd choose. He is a special, special talent. All those things I just said were things that have been said about Patrick Mahomes throughout his time in Kansas City. But whatever's going on in Kansas City right now, they're not being said about Patrick Mahomes. Look, the Chiefs beat the Packers on Sunday. Packers, of course, without Aaron Rodgers, had Jordan Love. Jordan Love looked like what a lot of people probably expected him to look like, a young quarterback was over his head in an offense that sorely needed him to do well. Now, I don't think the Packers did the best job of helping him out. I didn't think they ran it enough. And I think with I think with Aaron Rodgers, the tendency is to forget how good your running game is with Aaron Jones. I think I think because Rodgers is so good, you get away from the run sometimes. With Jordan Love you needed to run the ball a lot more and take pressure off them. They didn't do that. But the other side of the coin is that the Chiefs, they scored 13 points. Mahomes threw the ball 37 times. He only came up with 166 yards on those 37 attempts. 
Travis Kelsey's become a non-factor. Tyreek Hill hasn't had one of those big games in a long time. This is continuing to be a problem. And I'm not sure where it goes from here. There's a lot of time to figure it out and a lot of time to get hot. But right now, the Chiefs, they are not impressive whatsoever. And it's probably, in my opinion, the most surprising development of the league so far this year. The Kansas City Chiefs look average on offense. Very strange. The Cardinals are the best team in the league. They won without Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins on Sunday in in a division game on the road against the 49ers. Okay, I love the Cardinals, what they're doing. Cliff Kingsbury's been a far better coach than I expected him to be. They've got a good thing going in the desert. Chandler Jones is a beast. All that said, to me, my takeaway again on this game comes back to Kyle Shanahan. Kyle Shanahan's the most overrated coach in NFL and possibly the most overrated coach in NFL history. You continue to hear people talk about what a great mind Kyle Shanahan has. And offensively, if he's an offensive coordinator, he does have a great mind. Of course, if he runs the ball one more time, the Atlanta Falcons got a ring. But, you know, we, we all make mistakes. All of us do. Shanahan did that day. Shanahan continues to. I'm going to point out this, too. His career record, 32-40. and 40. Remember, he's a genius. You listen to all the experts talk about what a great offensive coach and what a genius he is. Career record of 32-40. and 40. Take out that year of 13-3 and three that they went to the Super Bowl. He's 19-37. and 37. Still nobody giving Kyle Shanahan heat. There's starting to be rumblings. But you're not hearing anything big-time negative. Shanahan, the most overrated coach in the NFL. The Titans have gone through a gauntlet recently. They beat the Bills, they beat the Chiefs, beat the Colts, and they beat the Rams on Sunday night. And how did they do it? Well, they didn't do it with Derrick Henry. But they did it by being a more physical football team. The NFL has gone away from physicality as much as possible. They've tried to become a passing league, and everyone's all happy that it's a passing league and fun. But when it comes down to it, you got to be able to block, and you got to be able to not get blocked. And if you have a beast on your defensive line, it changes things for the other guys on that defensive line. And right now, as good as Aaron Donald is, the best defensive tackle in the league might be Jeffrey Simmons. Remember, Simmons is the guy who blew up Deion Dawkins to prevent the Bills from getting the first down and beating the Titans in Tennessee. Simmons had three sacks on Sunday against the Rams. This is a kid who, on draft day, everyone's like, how do you take him when he's not going to play for a year? Well, props to the Titans, because they had the guts to wait on Simmons for a year. They had the ability to make sure they put him in a position to win. They bring in Harold Landry, who you see there in that picture, to rush the passer from the edge. And all of a sudden, that physicality of the defensive line has become a huge, huge thing. The Titans are absolutely the best team in the league right now. And I don't know how they'll continue to win without Henry, But if they do, it's because of their defense, not their offense. 
So really good stuff from the Titans. The Steelers last night got a win over the Bears. Joe Steelers got a win over the Bears. It was a good win. But I think the story above that win was twofold. One, Justin Fields is a player. He did a great job bringing the Bears back. The Bears, I don't think, are a very good team. They got a fortunate break with a turnover that ended up being a touchdown. But they gave the ball back to Justin Fields. He made big-time throws to put his team in position to win. Now, the other takeaway from that game is that the officiating was absolutely horrendous in that game. The Bears were penalized 745 times. Maybe not that many. The Steelers were penalized like five. I I honestly, I think it was like 14 penalties on the Bears and, and five on the Steelers. There was a personal foul call on Cassius Marsh. First off, everyone's going to defend Cassius Marsh on this play, and rightly so. This is a guy who, journeyman player, spent preseason with the Steelers, just activated from the Bears practice squad before this game, is getting his ass kicked on the play, but Ben scrambles, and Ben scrambling looks like me walking around. And I don't walk very well. But Ben is, is maybe the slowest quarterback in the history of the game. So Marsh, who's getting blocked downfield essentially, gets away from his blocker for a second, makes a tackle. Then he does some karate kid spin kick thing. I I don't know what it was. And eyeballs the Steeler bench. Team that cut him. He then, as he's running off the field, goes near referee Tony Carrenti, who looks like throws a hip into Marsh and then throws a 15-yard penalty to allow the Steelers to get a first down late in the game and keep the ball away from the Bears. It was unbelievable to me that that call was made. Now, is the call made because of the hip check there? Was the call made because Marsh was looking at the Steelers' sideline? You could kind of see Carrente's looking for the flag before the hip check, And maybe the hip check was the other part of it. But this is not a good look for the NFL. This has been a huge problem. The officials in the Bills-Jags game were horrible. And I didn't mention that because it had nothing to do with the Bills getting beat by the worst team in the league. It had nothing to do with it. But they were terrible. There were three or four illegal motions that were missed. And at offsides it was missed. They called the penalty on the wrong guy or the wrong team early on, if you if you remember that. Terrible. Throughout the league this year, the officiating has been, in my opinion, the worst it's ever been. It theoretically, with all the replay components and the ability for the league to talk to the referees on the field and fix things, it should be getting better. But I've always said this about officiating. The more replay you have, the worse the officials get because they know that their call can get bailed out. So they're less aggressive with their whistle, less sure with their whistle, and kind of take a step back. Now, look, if you don't have replay, you better make a call. You better be right 
or you better be sure of your call. And if you do that, you're going to be aggressive with the whistle. You're going to find the call to make and make the right call in your mind. With replay, you're more like, I'm not going to call that because I'm not sure, but replay will fix it if it's right. The more replay we have, the less assertive the officials are. And I think that's the problem. You want to fix it? Go to the Sky Judge. Sky Judge puts a, a guy, another referee, upstairs in the stadium to allow things to get fixed. They won't do that. And again, you're seeing a lot more replays overturned on Sunday night games, Monday night games, and even Thursday night games. Why? Because when the 1 o'clock and 4 o'clock window are going on in New York, you don't have eight people watching each game. You have probably eight people watching all the games. So the eyeballs are more spread out. It's got to be fixed. The officiating is out of control. It's something that the league won't acknowledge they have a problem with because they don't acknowledge they have problems with anything. Here's the other part. Remember, the league is now in bed with Vegas. And this doesn't mean that the league is fixed and the officials are fixing games. No. It means the visibility for bad calls and the impact of bad calls is much more important because it affects the gambling portion of it. The NFL has an officiating problem, and it's exasperated because now they're accepting the gambling portion of the league, and people are going to get more and more pissed off about it. Odell Beckham's situation is a mess. If I'm a team that wants to win, and I think Seattle has intimated that they'd be interested, I think the Saints might be interested, keep an eye on the Patriots. I think that this is the Randy Moss part two or 2.0 that you're going to see Odell Beckham go somewhere and possibly have success he didn't have in Cleveland. I think there's still something left. But honestly, I would not want him in my building if I'm trying to win a championship this year. Aaron Rodgers situation. The fact that he led everyone to believe he was vaccinated. Look, this is a slippery slope. You saw a lot more unvaccinated guys wearing masks in press conferences on the sidelines. Aaron Rodgers' arrogance about this situation is going to be, to me, his ultimate undoing in Green Bay. The fact he didn't take responsibility. Look, you, you might not like the rules. You might not agree with the vaccine rules. But if your employer puts that out there, that you have to be vaccinated, and if not, here's the repercussions, then live with the repercussions. That's your choice. And I get, I'm all for that choice. If you get vaccinated, that's your choice. If you don't get vaccinated, that's your choice. If your employer puts things on you, either way, that's their choice. And you have the choice to continue to go along with that. Aaron Rodgers wants to make up his own rules. It's not how we live in this society. And we might not like the rules we have to live by. Hell, there are things about this that I cannot stand. But you know what? It's my choice whether or not I go to work and have to deal with those rules. It is what it is. If you don't like it, go somewhere else. And Aaron Rodgers, his arrogance about that is what bothers me more than anything. He thinks he's above the rules. And it's just not a good look. But 
Packers showed how badly they need Rodgers. And I do think that after this year, he's going to want to move on. But I think after seeing Jordan Love up close and personal, Packers aren't going to be ready to move on from him. Remember this, when the succession went from Favre to Rodgers, it was a game that Favre got hurt. I think it was a Thanksgiving game against Dallas. Rodgers came in and lit it up. So anyone who watched that game thought, you know, this Rodgers kid, I think he could play a little bit. So the next year when they moved on from Brett Favre and gave it to Aaron Rodgers, they at least had seen what Rodgers could do, and the succession plan was in place. With Jordan Love, I don't think it's there. I don't think the succession plan is ready to be moved on from. I think Rodgers is going to want to go elsewhere, but I'm not sure that's the case. Here's the other thing, and I don't know if it's good or bad for the leagues. Back when Pete Rozelle, the late great commissioner of the NFL, his whole thing was parity. He wanted all the teams to be good. Well, this past weekend, he had upset after upset, bad teams beating good teams. Yes, it's interesting, but is it good for the league? Because right now it's who's good. Now, we're halfway through the year. And it's going to play itself out, and and you're going to see somebody get hot and go on a run, and that team will likely win the Super Bowl. Who gets hot? Oh, by the way, one team that we haven't talked about today because they were at a bye is a team I think that has a real chance to get hot this second half of this year, go on a run, and get the second Super Bowl in a row, and that's the Buccaneers. Keep an eye on that. They are a team, again, we don't want to see maybe, there's not a team right now that I would put on the field opposite them and not think that the Bucks are the better team. And that includes the Arizona Cardinals. So there's that. College football. We saw the rankings and we've seen the college football playoff rankings. If you look at it, it's, it's pretty interesting how this is going to play out. Georgia, in my opinion, by far the best team in college football. Nobody's even close. Alabama already has one loss. They're going to play Georgia in the SEC championship game. No two-loss team has ever gotten in. Now, Michigan State was number three. They're not going to be number three after last week. Oregon is number four. Oregon's certainly going to move up because they they didn't lose and they haven't played anybody and they're not going to play anybody the rest of the year. So Oregon's got a good chance of getting in. Ohio State is a one-loss team who's got to beat Michigan State and Michigan. Likely they will, so they'll be in the mix. Cincinnati plays nobody the rest of the year, and they're going to end up the end of the year undefeated. The team that's not in that top six that I'm really surprised isn't and likely will be there and likely will be one of the top four is Oklahoma if they finish out the year undefeated. They've got some tough games coming up. Play Baylor this week, Iowa State, and then Oklahoma State. So the respect isn't there for the Big 12 in Oklahoma. So we'll see where things go from here. Michigan at seven. I can't see them getting by Ohio State as things go forward. I just don't believe Harbaugh can do that. But the other team, and I keep selling this, look at number 10, Notre Dame. Remember that this is a reality TV show. And remember, nobody draws eyeballs like Notre Dame. Their one loss so far this year is to an undefeated Cincinnati team. I don't think Cincinnati ends up even if they go undefeated. And that's going to cause a lot of outcry. But that's the way it is. But Notre Dame, 
They're going to end up undefeated, in my opinion. I've been saying it for a couple weeks now. They have Virginia, Georgia Tech, and Stanford. Virginia will give them a game, but they should beat them. Stanford and Georgia Tech are both down this year. So definitely Notre Dame goes into it with a one loss. That one loss being to Cincinnati. Cincinnati, an undefeated team. How do you not make a case for Notre Dame being up there and being one of those teams? Going to be interesting to see. College football, the playoffs got to expand. I don't know if you go to 12. I don't know if you go to 8. It's got to expand. And, and I know that the counter-argument to that is if you go to 8, then the ninth team complains. You're not going to complain about the ninth team the way you are the fifth team. And there's too much subjectivity. And, and if Alabama, and I think they will, loses to Georgia in the SEC championship game, the second-best team in the country isn't in the college football playoff. Alabama's the second-best team in the country. They're not going to get in, in my opinion, because they're going to be a two-loss team. It's not going to happen. The Sabres finally ended the Jack Eichel saga. They traded him to Vegas. I'm going to give general manager Kevin Adams credit on this one. He got a decent return for what essentially is damaged goods in Jack Eichel. If Eichel gets healthy, he's going to get the surgery that he wants. If he gets healthy... He's one of the top 10 players in the league. So it's a huge, huge asset for Vegas. But you look at what what the Sabres got back. They got Alex Tuke back. He is a guy who's happy to be in Buffalo. When do you hear that? Somebody's happy to be in Buffalo. But Tuke is happy to be there. Peyton Krebs, who's here in Rochester now, is a very good prospect. The, the Knights liked him a lot. But moving on from him, plus a first and a second, now the Sabres have given up a third. That was about as good as you were going to do the way this thing got handled. And what's going to be interesting to me, eventually Jack Eichel's going to talk. And he kind of alluded to this, that he was happy with Kevin Adams. He was happy with a lot of things that went on in Buffalo, but there was one element he was not happy with. And speculation is that he is going to talk about how ownership was a huge part of this entire saga and why Jack Eichel is now in Vegas, not in Buffalo. The interesting part to me is we haven't had bad Pagula press in about, oh, I don't know, a month. So it'll be great to have the Pagulas back in the crosshairs, because, you know, eventually they're going to do something stupid. I really want Jack Eichel to talk. I really want him to discuss how big of an impact the, the Pagulas had on his wanting to get out of Buffalo. I hope also that Jack Eichel gets back healthy and, and is an impact player for the the Knights, because I, I think he's a really good young player, and I hate to see talent whose career get cut short because of injury. And right now, that's where it's trending. So if he gets the operation, comes back, I hope he does end up good. College Hoops kicks tips off tonight. And this, this should be great. The doubleheader at Madison Square Garden, Kansas, Michigan State. Michigan State's not ranked, but you know Izzo's got a team loaded with four- and five-star kids. Then you've got Duke and Kentucky. The one-and-done battles, it'll be like 10 freshmen, don't expect good basketball tonight because it's 
these teams are all generally one-and-done factories, and that means that this is the first game for a lot of freshmen. So don't expect really good basketball tonight, but it'll be fun to watch, and it'll be exciting. Syracuse plays Lafayette the first game in the Dome with fans, obviously, since 2019. That's going to be fun to watch. I can't wait to see how this team plays. I'm very intrigued by the multiple Bayheim starting lineup. I'm intrigued to see what Joe Girard has improved so much on. We, we've, read, we've read that Bayheim said he's the most improved player. Benny Williams coming off the bench in his freshman debut. The only freshman, by the way, on the Orange team. He's some special talent. Interested to see what he's got going. So it's going to be a lot of fun tonight in the Dome. And then finally tonight, another great decision by Rob Manfred. Look, the Major League Baseball awards are starting to come out. Sunday night, during Sunday night football, Major League Baseball announced the Gold Glove Award winners. You know what? Frankly, most people won't care about the Gold Glove Award winners. Most people don't really care that the Cardinals did something that no other team has done. Five Gold Glove recipients on the Cardinals team. Five. If you think about it, that's more than half. It's Five out of nine is, is unbelievable, and it just shows why the Cardinals were in there because they're not a great team talent-wise, but they play the game the right way. But you didn't hear about this. You didn't know about this. Because it came out opposite Sunday Night Football. Because Rob Manfred's a freaking moron. Unbelievable. Take a marketing class, dude. Just ridiculous. Oh, this too. Qualifying offers have been out, and now you're getting some players rejecting them. You might have a few players accept them over the next few days. Keep an eye on this. As the meetings transpire this week, there's owner meetings. You might see some movement really quickly because with the lockout likely to come in early December, I wouldn't be surprised to see a few teams try to make moves prior to that lockout, prior to that, so they can have themselves in pretty good situation so that when after the lockout ends, probably in mid-March, because spring training likely won't start on time, you're going to see guys rush and teams rush to get things done free agent-wise, and with their own players. This next couple weeks have a chance to be a very active time in Major League Baseball. You know, along those lines, the Mets might even find somebody who wants to run their team. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Michael Conforto, who's being shown, turned down the qualifying offer. No surprise there. He's a Scott Boris guy, even though he had a very poor offensive season last year. They know that there are teams out there that will get him. Keep an eye on Boston with Conforto. And if he goes there and they have the right hitting coach in place, I think Conforto could be a very solid player in Boston. Well, that's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Be back next week. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.